Amen. Thank you, worship ministry. Thank you, Mitch, for sharing this morning. I would invite each of you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to Genesis 16. Genesis 16. As we were singing earlier, uh, what beautiful songs. There was one of them, and I can't remember the title of it, maybe In His Time. I'd never heard that one before. But it makes me really think about this story that is before us as I really was sitting there pondering on Genesis 16 and the story we're about to read together and then later in the Grow Group Hour as we will share together of how God even works through the uh, unfavorable chapters and unfashionable chapters of our lives. We see that here in the story of Abraham. And I hope that your takeaway, before I say anything today, because we're going to look at the story of, friends, these are what we can safely call heroes of the faith that we're going to talk about today. And they have such major human deficiencies. And it's so human. Genesis 16 may be one of the saltiest chapters in Genesis because you can taste the salt of the moment, the humanity, the stress, the sweat, all of it. And we look at this story and we realize that these are the people God is using. That should tell us something so very much about our Heavenly Father. He is so kind. He is so patient. And friends, before I say anything about the message this morning, I want you to know that He loves you. I preached a message, this has, gosh, been a decade ago, and I was preaching on heaven. And as I was preaching on heaven, the question arose. I had a Q&A sermon or a Q&R, you know, Q&A's question and answer, Q&R's question and response. Responses are probably better when you're talking about anything in the Bible uh, because only God has all the answers. But anyway, it was a Q&R, and someone wanted to know, do the people in heaven, are they aware of what's going on on the earth? people up there are they aware you know what we're doing right now and I said you know we we see through a glass darkly we don't know for sure there are parts of the Bible that would make us believe that there's at least some awareness up there of what's going on here I said for instance when you read the book of Revelation the saints who are under the altar are longing for their loved ones to be with them and are wanting God to bring justice on the earth there seems to be at least some kind of awareness and the gentleman that asked the question I didn't find out until afterwards why he asked it. He said, um, Brother Matt, I, I asked that question. He said, because I'm very, very close to my grandmother, and she's been dead for some years now. And he said, uh, I just don't want her to be ashamed when she sees me. And uh, I pondered that. Behind every question, there is often a deep, and I told that brother then and I stand by it now I said listen I don't know what they know on the other side but I do know this that when we see Jesus we become like him and anything that we see in anyone else we see not through our eyes but his 
And let me tell you something about Jesus, because you, each of you is on a one-way path to see him face-to-face, whether you realize it or not. For those of you who are in Christ, I want you to take this one to the bank. He's more excited to see you than you will ever be to see him. This is how much he loves you. This is how accepted you are. And I promise you, when you walk on those golden streets, you'll have your head held high because everybody will be calling your name and saying, welcome home. This is the tenderness of the loving father that is going to preside over Genesis 16 in this most salty moment of human failure and weakness. Let's read together in Genesis 16, 1 through 15. It says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant who was named Hagar, and Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went in to Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. The spring was on the way to shore. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and you shall bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael, which means God hears because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against his kinsmen. So she called on the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing or Elroy. For she said, Truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Be'er Lahai Roi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. 
And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Our main statement this morning followed after our title, which is God must be waiting on us for, to do something, faith, is waiting on God is never easy. Waiting on God is never easy. We're in this Abraham story, which re, we began in Genesis 11, the end, moving into Genesis 12, when Abraham left his father's house and went out to a land that God was going to show him. Such a triumph of faith. Only you can't even get out of chapter 12 before Abram then goes down to Egypt and to save his own skin in his mind and also to essentially deceive Pharaoh in order that he might prosper. That is Abram, con Pharaoh. He tells Pharaoh that Sarai is his sister and then allows Sarai, his wife, to go into the arms of another man. Oh my goodness, how did that happen after such a triumph moment of faith in Genesis 12, at the latter part of Genesis 12, we've got a man conning Pharaoh and disrespecting his wife. What a mess. But then in the next scene we looked at is that the separation of Abram and Lot. It's where Abram is so committed to be in right relationship with not just God, but with his family. He says, listen, Lot, you go to the left and I'll go to the right. You go to the right. I'll go to the left. Let's just have peace amongst each other. And he says this from a posture of knowing that God is going to provide. And this moment of we see the man of God arbitrate peace between the people here on earth there is something as jesus said blessed are the peacemakers for they'll be called the sons of god there's something about abraham in that particular moment of abram and lot that we look at it and say that right there that is a man of faith but now we come here to genesis 16 and we can talk a little bit about Abram's deficiency of faith, but really Genesis 16 centers around not Abram, but it centers around Abram's wife, Sarai. And that's what I want to talk about today. The first principle is this, is that waiting on God goes hand in hand with following him. Waiting on God goes hand in hand with following him. Abram had received a promise in Genesis 12 that he would be given a land and that he and his offspring would become a blessing. In Genesis 15, it is reiterated that his children are going to outnumber the stars and the sand and that God is going to give the land to them for forever. And yet still here we are, 10 years Abram and Sarai have been in the Canaan land and still no baby. Now, the reason that is problematic is because at this point in Abram's life, he is likely 85, 86 years old. And Sarai is 75-ish, something around there. And they are approaching the time where if you're going to have a baby, it's kind of already in the rearview mirror. So they get anxious 
You know, when I read this story, I'm reminded about what waiting is like. First, is waiting is all about enduring an absence of personal fulfillment and gratification. When you're waiting on something, that means you're enduring the absence of gratification and fulfillment. That describes Abram and Sarai. But also, waiting on God is connected to belief. The reason they were in Canaan is because they believed. The reason that they're waiting on God for a child is because they believe. And frankly, even the reason they come up with this concoction of a method to have a baby is because they believe God's promises that God said that they were going to have offspring. Which reminds me that there are at least six categories of waiting on God. Again, waiting on God is about enduring an absence of personal fulfillment and gratification. Perhaps you're in a season of waiting on God today. But uh, there's six categories of waiting on God. First, there is resting in peace. That when you're waiting on God, you are resting in peace. This is when you know that God is not just your sovereign king. He is the shepherd of your heart. It is well with your soul. And you are at total peace that God in his own time and his own way is going to bring about what he has promised. That is resting in peace. And then when people bring up the hurt, the absence, it doesn't even sting so much because you're so rested and anchored in the presence and in the promises of God. But then there's another one. There's a resting in pain. Resting in pain. What is that? That is someone who is also just as persuaded about the sovereignty of God. That God is going to bring about His good plan and His good time. But at the same time is weighed down by the harshness of the weight. So it's a mixed bag, right? It's someone that says, Lord, I know you're in control. But this is so hard. This is so hard, but I know you're going to bring good out of this. But then there's another one. There's another one is worrying in peace, worrying in peace. And it's a little different than the first two, first being resting in peace and resting in pain. But then there is worrying in peace. This is people who are not really, they don't really know that they're in that much of a season of waiting, but they just worry anyway. Because they're worriers. And in fact, when they talk to other people and they say, are you not worried about this? And people say, well, no, I'm not worried about that. I don't worry about anything. Then they themselves take upon that worry to worry for that person who's not smart enough to worry about their life. And even though, yeah, it's well with their soul, you never know what could happen tomorrow. Wow, isn't it great? The bank account's full and everybody's healthy. But oh, somebody could get cancer tomorrow. And that is worrying in peace. But then there's also worrying in pain. And this is the person that's enduring the weight. It's, it's hard. And maybe has just forgotten a little bit that God really is control. Maybe it's just been too long maybe it's been too long of a wait and for whatever reason there's this worry that things might not work out after all that's worrying and pain then there's suffering and pain this is a harder way to wait this is when the waiting is hard this is because the issue is big 
and it's ever present in your life and you're reminded every day and you face it whether it be a financial crisis a family crisis a personal crisis whatever you fill in the blank you're reminded and it hits you in the face every day and it weighs on you and you worry and you hurt and you are suffering in pain because even though maybe somewhere down the line you heard that God was in control it's been so long since you've seen God do anything and it's been so hard that it's hard to remember that he really does have a plan and when you don't see a way out it gets hard I was uh, read this this week it's pretty interesting it was a test that was done on lab rats is that if you throw a lab rat into a jar of water and it has to tread water, um, it will give up swimming after about three minutes and die. But if you, at about two minutes and 45 seconds, remove the lab rat out of the jar of water, let it rest for five minutes and put it back in, the same jar of water, it will tread water for over three days. And the reason is, is when you know you're going to get out, you can endure. But when you think you're going to die, when you think that this is going to be the one that's going to do you in, it's easy to throw in the towel. That is what does it means to be suffering in pain. And then the finally, this one is deeply wounded by suffering. And I think this is what describes Sarai. Now you say, deeply wounded by suffering. She's married to this guy. They're wealthy. They've got a, you know, a decent life in the ancient world. Friends, when we read the text of this scripture and it opens up in Genesis 16 that Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. In the ancient world, that was the biggest blow that a woman could have on her identity. In fact, it was common practice in the ancient Semitic world that if a woman did not bear her husband a child, male or female, by her 10th year of marriage, that it was understandable that she could be divorced and left for another. Why? Because children played such a significant role in the validation for the worth of a woman in the ancient world. Now we know that Sarai was beautiful. We know that she is married to this successful man. We know that there would have surely been women look at her life and say, wow, I'd love to live a life like that. But could you imagine what it was like? Sarah is now 75 years old. Every time a servant has a baby in the camp, she hears a baby cry. Do you think she smiled? Do you think when she saw little toddlers run across the trails, she said, oh, isn't this precious? No. This has become very hard. Infertility in the ancient world, infertility in our world today for many, is very, very hard. 
An infertility that carried Sarah to 75 years old to the point where she's accepted. I guess it just ain't going to happen for me. And yet, we see how she's processed this. You can just hear the, just listen to this woman. Listen to this woman, how she processes the pain. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Can you not hear the pain in that statement? What in the world must have Sarai spoken to herself at night before she went to sleep? God is against me. He must be punishing me. He must not care about me. If my husband were really honest, he would tell me I was a letdown. Led her to say, well, the reason I don't have a baby is because God prevented it from happening. Deeply wounded by suffering. When you wait so long that you quit expecting anything to happen. I'm reminded of Exodus chapter 6, verses 8 through 9, which says this. When Moses is standing before the people, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. And Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel. But this is such an interesting statement to me. After he tells them, hey, it's going to be so good, y'all. It says what? But they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. You know when that happens? That happens when you have suffered in your weight and you've waited and you've waited and then you've waited some more and now you are deeply wounded and you are almost totally indifferent to whatever it is you're waiting on because you've waited so long. That is a deeply wounded woman that we're reading about in Genesis 16. But I want you to see this next part. In Genesis 16 is a direct link back to Genesis 3. Genesis 16 is a direct link back to Genesis 3. I don't know if you've caught this before, but I was reminded of that this week, and it's very fascinating. Genesis 16 uses the vocabulary of Genesis 3. One of the things that I love about movies is that you're able to discern what's going on on the scene by the theme music behind it. Like, Famous bad guy theme music. If I played it for you today, I, I guess I could walk over there, but I'll just make, a, make some sounds, okay? You tell me what bad guy this is. Da, 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 da. Who is it? Darth Vader. You already know that boy ain't right. There is something wrong with that man. He is a bad man. Why? Because it is dark and scary music because the music helps you discern what's going on because it connects you to other parts of the music other parts of the story and you go oh this is the bad guy music this is the bad guy or this is the good guy music this is the good guy or this is the sweet music this is the sweet moment music helps us determine that in the bible it's vocabulary Vocabulary is used to link us to other stories. 
Genesis 16 uses the same vocabulary as Genesis 3. I want you to see this. This is really fascinating. It's the exact same words in the Hebrew. Look at Genesis 16 and tell me if this doesn't remind you of a story somewhere. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Oh, does that remind us of anything? Let's go to this next slide. Okay. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and she and he ate as well. Do you see the connection between the two? Genesis 16 is a very human story in Genesis and is the retelling of Genesis 3. And that model that we see in Genesis 3, the whole idea that Eve looked out and saw something that she thought, if I don't have it, I won't be happy. That's what's going to make me happier than I am right now. So I'm going to reach out and take it. And then now, not only am I going to take it, honey, you can have some too. That's the story. Does it have any bearing on our story today? Sarai's self-worth, at least according to Genesis 16, is driven by a goodness out of reach. She sees herself as an incomplete woman because she has not been able to bear children. And this perceived goodness, this better life than she has right now, is out of reach, so she reaches out and takes and lays hold of goodness with her own hands to try to bring about at least a piece of that into her life. Which brings us to the second thing. Sarai is deeply wounded by infertility. Deeply wounded by infertility. And this is what drives her from this place of pain to get out of this hole. What's interesting is Abram is paralyzed by his wife's unhappiness because her pain is just too hot to touch. One of this part of the story is, why didn't Abram tell Sarai, baby, let's, let's just not do that. Maybe there's just a better way of dealing with that. From the opening lines, we see Sarai is very hurt. And you don't just dismiss her pain. Listen, Infertility is such a sensitive thing, especially in the ancient world. Perhaps you remember the lines of Rachel, Jacob's wife. There's, this is so painful, it hurts to read. Genesis 31 through 4, it says this, When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. Not he should have taken a play from Abraham, but nonetheless, he just got mad. His anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld you the fruit of the womb? I'm sure Jacob wanted that one back. Then he said, Then she said, Here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him 
her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went in to her. Abram liked Jacob. Friends, this issue, this hurt in Sarai is so hot to the touch that Abram is paralyzed in the moment. Also, both Sarai and Abram are at their wit's end by God's seeming silence and inaction. God had promised a land and kids, and they're now 10 years in Canaan, and there's no land and there's no kids. Remember Genesis 12, he said, to your offspring, I will give this land. And then in Genesis 15, he says, number the stars if you're able to number them. And then he said, so shall your offspring be. But they still weren't there. No kids. Which brings to the next point. Because of out of this pain of Sarai, this deep deep dissatisfaction with her life and this hurt. Now this pain pours over into Abram's life and now enters another character, Hagar. I'm reminded that hurting people hurt people. Both Abram and Hagar are victims of Sarai's deeply wounded heart. Don't make Sarai the bad guy here. These are all human people. Remember, we talked about it last week. Bad guys aren't humans. The real enemies are not flesh and blood. People are just people. And people are deeply hurt and wounded. And deeply hurt and wounded people can do very hurtful things. And in here, Abram, and really more so Hagar, is caught in the drama of the broken heart of Sarai. Also, Just like Adam and Eve, the pursuit of goodness apart from God is messy and never accomplishes what we are desiring. Just as after Eve took the fruit, gave it to her husband, and they both ate and then examined the situation and said, wow, you're naked. This is really bad. This is not what we thought it was going to be. In the same situation, Sarai takes Hagar, gives it to Abram, Hagar conceives, and then Sarai looks on the situation and says, this is not what I thought it was. Abram, it's your fault. Whoa, where does this come from? It's the same pattern from Genesis. Any pursuit of goodness apart from God is messy. And it always leads us to a moment in hindsight looking back and going, wow, this is not what I thought it was going to be. This is really painful. Again, speaking out of her heart, Sarah abuses Hagar and blames Abram. Also, on top of that, I'm out of time, I've got to keep going. Again, paralyzed by Sarai's pain, Abram abdicates his rule of a leader in the house. Sarai is now abusing Hagar. That's textbook bad. And now what does Abram say? He says, listen, sweetheart, we need to be righteous here and not mistreat Hagar. That's not what he says. He says, well, I mean, she works for you. You do what you want with her. This is a messy situation. And the saddest part of the story is Hagar the Egyptian is used and abused by the, by the elect by God to be the saviors of the world. Remember, Abram and Sarai have been called by God to be the blessers and the blessing for the whole world. And now I wonder if we could bring Hagar into this situation. I mean, we know the faith of Abraham. We know Israel. We know that Jesus comes from that. We know that they're the blessing of the world. I'm sure that if in that day we could say, Hagar, tell me about your relationship with the people of God. She would say, they're turkeys. Every single one of them. They're a bunch of crooks. 
Why? As I mentioned previously, there's no hurt like church hurt. There's no hurt like hurt when the people who love God hurt you. And the people who love God hurt Hagar. Like if she walked out and said, I don't want nothing to do with Yahweh. I don't want nothing to do with the church. I don't want nothing to do with any of one of y'all. Can't we at least understand how that happens in this story? Yeah. Which brings me to the final thing. And we're done. Contrary to Genesis 3 at the end of the hurt, abuse, and mess. There stands Jesus. He's called here in Genesis 16 the angel of the Lord. And theologians tell us the best way of understanding the angel of the Lord is understanding him to be the pre-incarnate Christ. God himself. This is the same angel that will speak from the burning bush to Moses. And I don't know if you've realized this before. But the first person that God ever meets face to face in the whole Bible outside of Adam and Eve is Hagar. God spoke to Abraham, but he looked and talked to Hagar, an Egyptian woman. What did Hagar learn? That he sees that he cares. Also, that he assures her pain is never in vain. Yes, Hagar, it's hard right now, but I'm going to make you a great nation and I'm going to bless your children. And that he stands to save a wounded Hagar. Hagar ultimately becomes a queen mother. Ishmael becomes the father of 12 princes. And to this day, they are a great and mighty people in the Middle East. God blesses wounded hearts. And he stands to save the wounded Hagar. But here's where I'm going to differentiate between our cultural moment. Because our cultural moment wants to read stories like this and say, Gosh, Sarai, can't you deal with, go to, would you just go to a counselor? I mean, you could get on some medication and maybe work some things out. And you wouldn't be so miserable to live with, right? And then your husband wouldn't have to figure out what to do with you. Listen, that's the cultural moment we live in. You know what's amazing to me in this story? God never rebukes or corrects Abram or Sarai in this moment. Not one time. In fact, it's interesting to me that when we read this story and we want to correct Abram and Sarai, if we correct Sarai and Abram in this story, we're doing something that God himself doesn't do. And when you're calling foul balls where God stayed silent, you need to re-examine your life. Because if the judge of all the earth says, let's just let this one play out, it'll be okay. He stands not only to stand, save Hagar, he stands to save a wounded Sarai and he stands to save a wounded Abram. And just even though this is the nastiest, most messy, most human, most salty story that you've read so far in Genesis, he that began the good work came to complete it. So let me close with 
this thought. Likely, you related to at least one of those characters in the story. And if you did, and you feel shame, then you've not yet understood the story as you ought to understand it. I didn't point out their weaknesses in order to shame you. I pointed out their weaknesses in order to show you that even the best of whom God uses needs working on when it comes to their hearts. And that to show you that he sees all of it and so tenderly meets each person at their point of need. So that at the end of all of our pain, there stands Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray today that at the end of our pain, at the end of the hurt, that we would see Jesus. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen and amen.